0: Yesterday, I had a wedding, and uh, part of the ceremony, they read from the Velveteen Rabbit, the story about the skin horse. See, I see a lot of you nodding. I love that story. The skin horse was old and wise. He'd lived in the nursery more than all of the other animals. And the Velveteen Rabbit asked him, what is real? And he said, real isn't and is, and just a beautiful story. I love stories. And I think you don't get too old to love stories. There's something in us as human beings that loves a tale. Um, I'm Irish enough that half of the tales I was told are nowhere near the truth, but they're fun and interesting. And what we're doing for these couple of months is looking at stories that Jesus told. Uh, wh- what you know is that we're, we're hoping to get back to Jesus. Um, I, I think what, what Dean was talking about a, a few minutes ago is is what I'm thinking about as well, which is Even within the Christian church, and within evangelicalism, um, these are strange times. People are are going far left and far right all at the same time. And the the thing in the middle of all of that that I think is critical is that we come back to Jesus and just meet him again, Um, and take away layers that maybe should or maybe shouldn't be around the stories of Jesus, Um, but go back to who he was, what he did, and what he said. And so we're, we're listening to some of his friends. We, we listened to one of his friends um, who told us all of the times that Jesus began a conversation with I am. And we were looking to find out why that friend of Jesus, whose name was John, told those stories. And we discovered time after time that it was against the background of religion that was just Oppressive. Uh, Thousands of laws, thousands of religious police. And in the middle of all of that, Jesus just brought refreshing news about who he is and why he came. And I think we need that again today. So, having done that, we're going to go to what another friend of his told us. And this person is Luke. And uh, Luke tells us. about the stories that Jesus told in in particular, and he records several stories that nobody else tells, not Matthew or Mark or John. And so it's a little early for us to, to conjecture about this, but there must be some reason that Luke is telling us these stories. Just like John seemed to be wanting us to get that it's a relationship with Jesus. It's not religion that we're after. So Luke must be wanting to tell us something by selecting these stories that he told us about Jesus. So uh, the story that we're going to look at today is a fantastic story um, that goes like this. Then he told them a story. A rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. He said to himself, what should I do? I don't have room for all my crops. Then he said, I know. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Then I'll have enough room to store all of my wheat and other goods. And I'll sit back and say to myself, self, my friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. Now take it easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, you'll die this very night. Then who will get everything you worked for? Yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth but not have a rich relationship with God. What a great story, huh? And what a character this was who has this terrible conundrum that we would all love to have. He has too much money and doesn't know what to do with it. His crops have yielded such a a bounty that he he looks at it all and he says, oh, man, life is good. I have such a problem. I don't have enough room for all the stuff I've grown. What am I going to do? And then he says, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to tear down my barns. And I'm going to build bigger barns. And I'm going to say to myself, you've done it. Here's the easy life. Sit back, eat, drink, and be merry. Now, listening to Jesus, you might have been called into the thinking about this character or this caricature and say, so what's wrong with this story? Because until we get to the last part of it, doesn't seem like there's very much wrong, Right? He's just, he's, he's making a good business plan. He's saying, I need storage for my crops, so the only sensible thing to do is to tear down my barns, build bigger ones. That's exactly what I'm going to do, and then I'll be able to take it easy. It is Freedom 55, or Freedom whatever it was for him. And the only thing that hadn't crossed his mind was his mortality. That's what's wrong in the story. God came and he said, hmm, very interesting, all these things that you're planning to do. What about this? Tonight you die. How are things going to be after that? Now, these stories of Jesus call us into them. They want us to have dialogue with them. They want us to find ourselves in the story. Uh, Let me suggest to you a shadow story that might have been told. Here's another person who is quite obsessed with his mortality. He has a bumper sticker on his car or his wagon or his donkey, whatever it was, that says, life is hard, then you die. And he doesn't get a job because what's the point? He basically fritters away his time, whatever the government is willing to dole out to him, quite happy to take, but he has no plans, no job, and he sits there and basically licks his wounds. He's talking to himself as well. But he's saying, Life is hard, and somebody should take care of me. I've tried the lottery, haven't won yet. Going to keep on buying tickets. And God comes to him and says, You fool. I've given you 70 years, a family, and the opportunity for a legacy. Which of the two is the smarter guy? Right? So what is Jesus wanting us to get here? Is he wanting us to be foolish business people and say the only thing that really matters is that we figure out what's going to happen when we die? Or is he telling us something else? So let me today bring us through a bit of a theology of work as far as the Bible is concerned as, as I see it. Um, what is God's view of work? What's our view of work? And right along with that is God's view of wealth and our view of wealth um, because we need to be clear about that stuff. So let me bring you back to the Old Testament and remind you of, of what we learn about working, about wages, about responsibility, and then we'll find our way all the way back to the story of the rich farmer and see what it is that we're supposed to learn in all of this. A biblical theology of work, I think, needs to begin back in the story of creation. Because let's ask ourselves, is work a good thing or not? Is work a thing you have to do or you get to do? Is work something that drains you or is it something that uh, energizes you? Is work, what is work? Is it good? Is it bad? Is it necessary? Is it, what is work? Well, from the very beginning, uh, I think it's important for us to understand that God created us to do work. So th- there's some really great news, right? So if you enjoy working, um, don't be embarrassed about that. Don't, don't apologize that you, you work hard, um, no matter what the union boss says when he comes walking through the floor and you're too industrious for him. Don't, don't apologize if you like working, if you like your job, because God created us to work, right? Because at the very beginning, we're told this, the Lord God placed man in the Garden of Eden to tend... And watch over it. That that's the reason that is stated. Now, back in Genesis one, we're we're given far more philosophical reasons where God says, "Let's make man in our image," and He did. He made them male and female in His image. He made them. So there's something lofty and theological and philosophical about that. But practically speaking, God said, "Now that I've made you, what are you going to do with your time? You're going to tend the garden." Your job is to look after the Garden of Eden. It's meaningful work. Now, I don't know what it was like to be a gardener in the Garden of Eden. Um, By what we're about to talk about, it must have been idyllic. I mean, imagine planting something and possibly just standing back and watching it grow. Watching it grow into its perfect form. No weeds spring up around it no part of it withers, No part. Of, it's just, it just yields, the, the, the ground yields for you. And the work that God gave to humankind to do was delightful work, it was meaningful work, it was beautiful work. They could put energy into something and see an incredible result and rejoice in that as they walked in the cool of the day with God who put them in the garden to take care of his trees and plants and vegetables as well as all of the animals that are flying or crawling or swimming or galloping, whatever it is. But something happened, and we find that after sin, um, the curse frustrated work. So God had something to say to Eve about her responsibility for their rebellion. and He had something to say to Adam because of his responsibility. He said to Adam, because of you, the ground is cursed and you will work the ground with the sweat of your brow, you will toil and it will not yield for you except for thorns and thistles. And by your sweat you will labor all your life long and then since you are from dust to dust you'll return and that'll be the end of the story for you. So everything that was easy, everything that was meaningful, everything that was delightful turned into a problem, it turned into frustration. So thorns and thistles grew. So how many of you are gardeners, love, love being gardeners? Thorns and thistles, I mean, you, you don't even have to sow those things. They, they appear from nowhere. They, they're in the soil. They're in the air. And all of the things that you hope will be easy to do, you plant a tomato plant and you hope it's going to just grow and, and yield tremendous tomatoes. And then you see that there's one of those tomatoes and it has a big blemish in it. Why did that happen? And why is it hard to get a yield from the land? So farming was the first job that humankind was given to do, but work was frustrated by our sinfulness. And so if we extend that into the whole realm of employment, into the whole realm of work, working has become something that, although we were created for it, is frustrating, right? So what frustrates us about work? Sometimes it is just the sin and evil in the world. That's pretty plain and obvious for us to see. But sometimes it's simply the, the weakness of our own flesh that since we are a fallen creation, we're not able to do as much as we would like to do. So we run out of strength, we run out of resources, we run out of ideas. Because we are people who disappoint one another, we disappoint one another at work as well. And when I expected that you would have that report on my desk and you didn't, there are all kinds of reasons that you didn't, but there are things that then come up between us that cause bad feelings. And work um, sometimes seems to be more frustrating than it is satisfying. Even building this place, as wonderful as it has been, it's been a matter of why, why, why did that elevator lock poor Lorne in there for almost an hour right? That's because of the fall. You get that? I mean, elevators would work perfectly apart from the fall. There's something broken in everything that makes work not something fulfilling, but something that is frustrating. And yet all the while, we know that we were created by God to work. Meaningful work is a gift from God. It is a way that God expects that we will use our time. It's a way that he expects we will supply for our families and our communities and our world. It's a way that he expects that we will produce a legacy for those who come after us, for what we leave for our children and grandchildren and what we leave in our world. And yet every day that any of us goes to work will be frustrated because it's broken around us. A little bit farther when we think about all of this, there's some caricatures in scripture that have to do with work. One of them is the proverbial fool. And Proverbs is just full of stories about fools, right? It's, it's kind of a, a, it's a story, it's a binary story of the wise person and the foolish person. And one of the ways that the foolish person is caricatured is that that person is lazy that that person is a schemer and that that person is always dreaming up cheap ways to get what he wants or she wants or fast ways to get what she wants or he wants. And so we hear this in the Proverbs. He who works his land will have abundant food, but he who chases fantasies lacks judgment. I had a friend long ago, and he, he was always into get-rich-quick schemes. I mean, there was no end to the new schemes that he came up with. Not a single one succeeded. Now, the downside of that is that there are those kinds of people, and for some reason, sometimes they do, and you scratch your head and you say, why did that person get that? How did that go? Well, my friend was just a schemer because he didn't want to work hard. He wanted things to come to him more easily than they responsibly should. So the Proverbs has something to say about that person. The Proverbs says, that's a fool. A person who doesn't work diligently to supply for his family and his community and to develop a legacy, a person who wants it quickly and now and here um, is, is a foolish person. We get into some of the, the meat of what the, the story is going to tell us with Cain and Abel. So when Adam and Eve were banished from the garden, there were certain rules they were placed. They weren't allowed back in the garden. But one of the things that we're told is kind of a curious thing. It says that God gave them coats of skin to wear. And in that little notion, um, we're shown that God supplied to them a way to have a relationship with him, a way of sacrifice. So because of what they did, God decided that a sacrifice was going to be required for them to have a relationship with him. And that's all in God's mind and and wisdom. But it then developed into the whole religious system of the Old Testament and finally fulfilled in Jesus being the Lamb of God. Well, in the heat of all of that, Cain and Abel, were told, brought gifts or offerings to God. And Cain brought some of the fruit of his labor. While we're told that Abel brought the firstlings of his flock and fat portions. And God, we're told, had regard for Abel's offering, but he did not have regard for Cain's offering. So Cain murdered his brother. And God came to him and said, Why did why did you do this? Don't you know that sin now is crouching at your door and it's it's wanting to devour you? And Cain is he, he's just incensed. Why would you accept his offering and not mine? Because already way back then, God was wanting to teach about how our relationship with him is far beyond um, just doing our very best and bringing our best and saying to God, you should be happy with this. You should be satisfied with this. He wanted an offering from both Cain and Abel that reflected a relationship with him. So the work that they did, because Cain was a tiller of the soil, Abel was a shepherd, the work that they did... God wanted to be involved in, and when Cain, as a result of his work, didn't get that God wanted a certain way for him to relate to him, and Abel did get that, we begin to see a little bit of the nuance of difference, which then takes us all the way up to the rich farmer of Luke chapter 12. So what was wrong in the story of the rich farmer? What was wrong was that he completely overlooked his mortality and completely overlooked the expectation that God had to be involved in this person's life and work in an intricate way. So here's somebody who was willing to spend his days, his weeks, his months, his years with no regard to God, religion, or mortality. It just didn't occur to him that when he died, all of this stuff wouldn't matter anymore. So he should have learned that having a relationship with God and having God involved in his work would be the way to live a balanced and a healthy life. So the story of work in the Bible is this, that it's good. It's frustrated by our fall and by the brokenness of our world. But it is God's expectation that we would spend our time laboring, that we would use the creativity that God has given us, the imagination that he has given us, the skills that he's given us, and that we should employ ourselves ourselves In ways that we integrate God in our thinking, in our business, in our school, in our industry, whatever it is, because God likes work. And he likes that people do do work when they can. When people can't work, then we have a great model in the Israelite society of what happened when there were the poor, when there were the widows, when there were the orphans, when somebody couldn't work, the community supplied for them in beautiful ways in the context of, of covenant, a relationship with God. So work should be something that we are happy to talk about, something that we're happy to chat about, and something that we should involve God in. So sometimes um, I get the notion from people that they think that the only worthwhile work that is done is done by people like me, pastors. There are lots of people who think the opposite who think that being a pastor is a waste of anybody's time and attention and, and all of that, right? Or a missionary. So when I was growing up, the best thing to be was a missionary. Second best was to be a pastor. If you couldn't be a missionary, then you should be a pastor. If you couldn't be a pastor, you should get a, re- a regular job. I almost said a real job because that's the language that I've heard as time goes by, right? Whatever you do is your vocation from God, You get that? I mean, there are some vocations that aren't vocations. If they're against the law, then you can't claim God gave you that job to do, right? We'll have to to put that in a different category. But whatever it is that you do, and to the extent that it, it represents who you are, what you love, what you're skilled at, what you're gifted about, God is involved in that, wants to be involved in that, wants to go to work with you. So you don't work all week and then do a Christian thing by going to church on Sunday. You are a Christian before anything else. And over the years, I've often challenged people to, to put the word Christian before their vocation. So on, on the airplane, when you're having the conversation, right, finally two guys, so what is it you do? And you know, I say, why don't you say you're a Christian, whatever it is, if you're a doctor, you say, I'm a Christian doctor. And I even say, if you're a lawyer, you should say you're a Christian lawyer. And I said that to a guy in a plane and he said, well, those two words don't really go together very well. You know that, right? But what does it mean to say you're a Christian teacher? It means that first of all, you have sorted through the religious issues of your life and your world. Presumably, it means that you understand mortality. That no matter what the world is saying to you, no matter what it's playing out to you as though if you do this job well or if you get the advancements you want, your life will just always be a a garden of roses, everything. You, if you're a Christian, have taken on board that one day you'll die. And your mortality will be part of how you value what goes on in your job. So it depends on how you spend the time doing the thing you're called to do with the people with whom you're called to do it, um, that what will happen after your death will be still part of the continuum of your experience as a human being. Biblical theology of work, it's a good thing. God wants us to do it. He started us off doing it. We have messed up our world so it's hard to work and it's hard to work meaningfully in a broken world and in broken relationships but God still expects that that's what we will do, but he expects that we will do it in the context of his presence with us and the fact that one day we will die, that we will not make plans as though retirement is the absolute end and if I succeed towards retirement, I will have been a blessed person. No, that will be part of it, but you will be a blessed person if and when this life is over and what you have done carries forward what you have done by the way you do your job, by the job you have done, carries forward into the the future beyond your death itself. Let me show you what I think can help us figure this out here. So there's a line. And I am a great artist, it's part of my gifting. (laughs) Um, I'm gonna say at this end, that's a W and that's an M. Okay, I'll do better. Hang on. It's not easy. Yeah, if if you think it's easy, come on up here. So what we're striving for is balance. What was missing in the farmer's life was balance. He had a good business plan, successful farming, but he had no balance because there was no sense of his mortality. There was no sense of of his religion. And so he, he was completely off balance and work became so important to him um, and mortality was just not on his radar. You could be the other way and work would be so of such little importance to you because you're consumed with your mortality. And you say, what's the point in working? I'm a dying person. I'm living in the the middle of brokenness and all that kind of stuff. So we don't want any of those things. That's why they're X out there. We want the straight line of a balance between work and mortality. How do we get that? So the reason I balanced the work mortality continuum on a triangle is to remind you of our triangle, right? What's our triangle about? It's about the up, the in, and the out. And I think that the key to living the balance between a fruitful life in terms of the work that you do and a religious life that considers your mortality all the while you are a working individual, family member, family leader, legacy builder, all of those sorts of things, if you balance your life on the up, in, and out, which is to say you think about God, you think about one another, and you think about those who are outside, and we'll we'll think about who they are, you can keep in balance. So if we think about our relationship with God, we, we know generally what that means. We live healthy lives where we walk with God, we talk with God, we let his Holy Spirit speak to us and we do what we're told. But suppose on the inn, um, we think about a business and say the people on the inn might be our staff, right? They, they might be the employees, they might be the crew at work, they might be the faculty, they might be the staff. And if we put on the out those people that we might think are our customers or our clients or whatever it is, if we were regularly thinking about the balance of those three directions in our lives and we were considering for each of those directions what we should be doing in terms of work and what we should be doing in terms of mortality, if we, with our staff, with the people at work, if we, we build them up to show them uh, the character of Christ and the way that we lead them in the work that we do, if our customers can always say about us, um, she has a good name or he has a good name. That's an Irish expression that basically means that if you need your shoes fixed, um, Joe up the street, the cobbler, has a good name. It means he does good work, he's fair, he treats you respectfully, and all those sorts of things. So we don't do our work and then do our Christianity. We do our work as Christians, realizing that we're mortal. And so there's no point in just working our careers to the nth degree to end up at the last day and say, there you go, I've made a ton of money, and here it is. Because God might say, yeah, but what you forgot about is that you're going to die tonight. But we also don't spend our lives not working and providing and building a legacy because we actually are just thinking about dying. We live our lives thinking, what does it mean to be a Christian teacher, whatever it is that I am, and in that context, how do I live this balance so that I have an impact on those that are near me, those that I'm serving, maybe the staff, the students, and I'm known as a person who walks with God. Um, so that he will be pleased at the end of the day and at, at the end of my life. Great plan. Tear down the barns, build bigger ones. There's nothing wrong with that. It's a good business plan. Except it forgets to factor in that at the end of the day, you're dead. Life is hard, then you die. But between the two is a healthy life in which we thrive and we live into... The image of God in which we're created, right? Because God is a worker. God does not, has not ever just sat there. God has worked. God has created. God has used his imagination and spoken into existence. Jesus has worked. He came to do a work for his father. So our God is a worker, and he commits us to being like him. And many of the things that make us human and make us in the image of God are those things that should delight us in doing our jobs. What is your imagination like? What's your creativity like? What is the thing that you're able to do um, that's a great skill that others look at you doing it and say, how do you do that? That's so, so, I mean, what is that? That's not just an animal function. That's, that's a godly function to be able to do that sort of a thing or to be able to work with people in that kind of a way. Or to be involved in committing yourself to things that are what God cares about in people's lives. Um, some great ministries around the world. The work that is being done. Um, it is right at the heart of God. So work for widows and orphans. It's always, always at the heart of God. And so those who are doing that can be clearly um, committing themselves to good work in a relationship with God that keeps things in the proper balance. Work is good enjoy your work if you hate your job quit find one that you love it's not worth doing a job that you do what well, it is it's worth doing a job to, but let's try to love our jobs and then let's try to love our people love our customers and love god so that um we end up at the end of our lives not having dichotomized ourselves between the working me that's got nothing to do with anything that's actually meaningful and the religious me that just does it on Sundays, but it's all the same me that goes to work Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, whenever we go. Father, we pray that you will um, just take us to school with this rich farmer, uh, help us to see the obvious um, blind spot that he had, and may we um, just uh, examine ourselves and find the wise approach to living as workers, doing a job, Uh, Being involved in a vocation. And let us find the way, whatever it is, in the middle of that.